Hi, podcast folks. Welcome to Drawing the Line. The following recording is actually from my YouTube channel. I originally wasn't going to include it here on the podcast, but it turns out that one of the readings that I did uh, does deal with drawing directly, the first one. And after a bit of consideration, I thought that was enough to put it here on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy. If you guys have any questions, you can reach out to me at stevensketches at gmail.com. Talk soon. I have no, I have no idea what to say up front here. That doesn't sound stupid. <laughs> I've been feeling uh, very scattered the past couple of weeks, but I still wanted to get something out to you guys. So I thought that I would just lean into that scattered feeling. And instead of presenting something focused, I would present some readings. Just let the car go by. You know, he's very loud and it makes him feel good. And that's important. He needs to feel good. Anyway, I grabbed some, I grabbed three readings from a number of writing files that I keep open. Do you guys write a lot? I do a lot of writing besides the drawing and everything. Well, maybe not a lot, I, but I do it, I do it a goodly amount. And I thought I would just go through them and just present some scattered ideas. I don't really know why I feel compelled to present these particular things. I literally just opened up like 10 files that all have different kinds of things, notes, fiction writing, nonfiction writing, uh, random thoughts. And I just sort of skimmed through them and pulled three things that I kind of liked. So first one's gonna be uh, our usual, something more like our drawing talk. Second one's gonna be from a bit of nonfiction that I'm writing, that's like half literary analysis and half autobiography. And the third one is gonna be a little bit of fiction that I was poking at here and there. So let's start with the drawing one. This is from a file that I keep that is sort of like a book about drawing that I'm writing, quote unquote. I wouldn't say it's really an art instructional book, though it does talk about technique a lot, but. Uh, I plucked this from what would be the introduction of that book, so maybe hearing this will give you a bit of an idea of the tone of that. So here's the reading. Drawing has been many things to many people for as far back as drawing goes. The paintings of animals on the walls of Lascaux Cave are definitively humbling in their draftsmanship and modernity. The guesses, hazarded by art historians to explain some of their peculiarities, would elevate their creators to adepts rather than naive ancestors. They drew wide and huge to convey the scale of the beasts, used the natural shapes in the stone to suggest the roundness of the animals, and drew limbs in superposition to give the impression of animation and flickering firelight. Anachronistic understandings of experience, form, and animation aside, the theories that fascinate me the most about them are also the least controversial. They tell, across the deliriously wide maw of time, of a deep spiritual association with drawing. There is a sense that each drawing is a prayer of some kind, an offering. This mystical connection went with art for a long time, from the caves and sacred sites of our lost civilizations, to the dogmatic iconography of the Dark Ages, to the sensuality of the Renaissance masters, to the visionary masterpieces of Blake. A look around today, however, shows a distinct lack of this older aspect of drawing. I worry that the reader will think I'm searching for religious or iconographic art of a particular type. I'm not. And indeed, of that there is plenty to be found in the circles of religious painters that still exist. In fact, I don't care at all what you're drawing. 
I don't care if it's fine art, commercial art, fan art, illustration, graphic design, life drawing, drawing from your imagination, automatic drawing, high, low, crass, or sophisticated. What's on the paper is not 1% of what is going on. This mystical aspect is an experience. It's about how you feel while you work. This book will talk about technique, training, and theory in some amount, but always with the hope of revealing that none of these things actually prevent you from engaging drawing on a deeper level. That's a roadblock we erect all on our own. Drawing is seen as a means to an end in so many industries and areas of art these days. It seems only the most avant-garde and experimental types alight on the truth of its broad scope with any regularity. I think that small group is quite enough to preserve the fascination with drawing for future generations. I don't think drawing needs our help. But that doesn't mean there is no reason to present these ideas to those who pursue drawing more conventionally. Every person who deepens their connection with this oldest of arts vindicates the whole endeavor and makes every effort worthwhile. All right. So that's pulled from the hypothetical introduction of this hypothetical book on drawing that I'm writing. Now let's go to the second reading. This is from a project I've been working on for a while that is, um, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to describe it as autobiographical. It's, uh, it's about uh, things that uh, happened to my father, but in order to explain my feelings on them, uh, there's quite a lot of discussing art and symbols and literary analysis. I don't know how to describe it. So again, I'm at a loss for words. I'm just going to read this little bit that I plucked out. This is just one of the parts that's mostly presenting some literary stuff. Here we go. In his Inferno, Dante put Judas, Cassius, and Brutus in the lowest circle of hell, to be chewed forever by the three mouths of the very first traitor, Satan. You know what? I just remembered what is in this reading. Uh, <laughs> let me just say that uh, all the most awful things are in this project. So if you have any sensitivities to abuse, uh, self-abuse, uh, thoughts of self-harm, any kind of PTSD, I would recommend that you uh, not listen to the rest of this or, yeah, just close this. You don't need this. All right, here we go. In his inferno, Dante put Judas, Cassius, and Brutus in the lowest circle of hell to be chewed forever by the three mouths of the first traitor, Satan. They were condemned to this torture because they, too, were traitors. Judas betrayed the Son of God, Jesus Christ, thus instantiating the rare, if hypothetical, altruistic suicide. Cassius and Brutus assassinated their lord, Caesar, committing the most infamous regicide in the history of the world. Brutus, in particular, might have felt like he was killing his own father. It is not insignificant, however, that they were, all three, also suicides. Judas hanged himself, and his blood fed a field that would forever hold the corpses of strangers. Brutus ran into a sword held by two of his men. Cassius killed himself with the same dagger he used to kill Caesar. For that dramatic flair, I wish I had an explanation. Did he always keep the dagger close? To revel in the memory of his deed? Or did he always have its ultimate purpose in mind? Did he know there was a debt left to be paid? 
They were indeed, all three, traitors of the highest order. They betrayed those they loved dearly, broke their oaths, and eventually committed treason against themselves. They embodied the adversarial archetype, him whose course is to turn against. Earlier in the poem, Dante fashions a different punishment for the suicides who only laid violent hands on themselves. They are turned into wretched, bleeding trees whose branches and trunks are forever agonized by the vicious harpies. They are deprived of their human form for having carelessly vacated it in life. All others in hell keep their form, though it be twisted or mutilated. Even Judas! Only his legs remain visible, eternally thrashing from between the teeth and claws of Lucifer. When the Divine Comedy opens, Dante is hopelessly lost in a dark wood, conspicuously one of the few places in the epic with trees present, like the realm of the suicides. Dante is clearly in crisis here and cannot recall how he lost his way or where he was going. He has no equipment, friends, or food. To me, it seems he entered the woods with no intention to leave. He also expressed his belief that even if he could escape, he was doomed to return. Forget your hopes. They were what brought you here. This is carved above the gates of hell through which Dante and Virgil enter. If you've seen Rodin's masterpiece depicting the gates, you have seen the sensuality and lusciousness that inherently goes with our image of hell. It would, of course, be painful to have your liver picked out, eternally, as demons rend and rake you. But can you deny the sensuality of it? To know so viscerally the result of your sins to be forever witnessed and validated by beasts and creatures of spectacular horror, to be reminded with every tear that what you did is somehow truly existentially important to think even the lowest worm can affront God and wrinkle his nose. All right, so that's that reading from my little nonfiction project. Well, you see why I hesitate to call it nonfiction writing because I'm discussing books that really exist in our world, but those books are fiction. Anyway, you get the idea. And I picked this reading from that project because I'm the drawing that you're watching right now in the YouTube video is an illustration for this part of this story. You know, like I said, in Dante's Inferno, the suicides are turned into wretched, bleeding trees. This drawing is an illustration of that idea, but it's also mixed up with a whole bunch of other symbols. It's not directly that. You know, this is, you know, I call this drawing the world tree, and uh, there's really more than just that one layer going on here. At least I'm going for that. But uh, to explain that, we'll, uh, well, it won't, wouldn't just be impossible here, but yeah, the, the only way to explain it how to put it, the complete project will explain those layered symbols on its own. So there's no need for me to talk about it here. And uh, that also kind of segues nicely into this third reading, because we're talking about hell and, you know, there's some mention of Lucifer and stuff like that in there. So now I'm also going to read you a piece of fiction that I wrote recently. And uh, this is just a story I was toying around with that I've been tossing around the idea of doing a story about hell, tossing that around for years at this point, and uh, it's taken on 
many iterations, all of which just amount to me writing the first little sections of all of these different stories and then abandoning them because they don't feel quite right. This will probably be resigned to that same bin of abandonment, but it doesn't matter, I've decided recently, because it's just fun to write the beginnings, right? Like, getting rid of any sense of responsibility of like having to finish projects or anything like that. I just love doing these little starts. It brings me a lot of joy. So whether I keep going with this or not, who cares? All right. So this is from an iteration of that idea that is called Seatree. All right, here we go. Seatree had been the Lord of the Damned for as long as he could remember. Longer than he could remember, actually. If he thought way back, way back, all the way back, He arrived at a time where his memories of himself were just the stories others told about him. He couldn't remember what it was like to live those things. He instead imagined himself doing them much the same way others imagined him doing them. Being formed from the eternal world void by form father, ranging with his brothers and sisters across the weave of time and cause, lapping deep from the pool of hate under the fracturing sky of heaven, and waging holy war against form father in the ecstasy of treason. These things were all true, he was sure. They had the ring of truth to them. But was it just the same ring everyone else heard? The truth of legend. Lately, lingering on this gave Citri a deeply disconnected feeling. His subjects and shades called him Warbringer, Death Herald, First Betrayer, and all the other honorifics befitting his station as originator of enmity and angst, but they had started to feel hollow to him. He often found himself distracted with contemplation. Were these things really what he was? If the opportunity for holy war presented itself now, would he take it? Was he what he used to be? The line of memory cut, he didn't feel he could be too sure. He would sometimes catch himself in the middle of imaginings that could only be described as disturbing. Himself bringing water to the lips of a thirsty shade and not pulling it away at the last moment. Distracting harpies with lovely dinners and opulences to let some shades keep their livers for a night. He once caught himself absently fingering the knot that kept a particularly romantic shade tied to its spot wherefrom it witnessed the looping evisceration of its lover. Citri grew increasingly enraged at these fantasies, at times thinking himself possessed by an angel, or that he was subject to one of Formfather's cunning ruses. But, no. Citri's mind was all his own, he knew. Not even Formfather foresaw his betrayal, they said. Why manipulate him now, not then? Citri did not like the contortions these thoughts put him in. And if he let them run too long, he would sometimes feel he was the only being in the land of the damned truly being punished. It seemed nothing was in his control, that there was at least some chance it was all a horrid mirror, a shiny glass just before his eyes on which danced the acts and morbidities of his imagined agency, while form father laughed behind it. These were the only thoughts that made Citri feel like his old self, From the center of this cognitive ring bubbled up a hate so black and sticky it could cover all of hell. It could fuel a thousand hells, and all the many millions of tortures and deceptions needed therein. But it didn't. The work was already done. The war already fought. The realm already wrought. 
and now it only turned inward. And when Citri lingered long on the fact that his imperial substance could not fail, that for all his might and destructive power, he was not free to destroy his own divine form, that seemed the cruelest possible joke. A final torture of such exceeding brilliance, he could not forestall the paranoid thought that it was Form Father's point all along. It was at this very point that Citri would begin flaying shades, chewing them and besetting them with abject dramas and dreams of the most upsetting kind, and hell would swirl bright indeed, the darkness positively glowing with the wailing of the woeful and the wretched. All right, so there they are. Three random readings pulled from three random files. And uh, yeah, I don't really know what much else to say about them. You can draw whatever connections between them you would like. And I hope you enjoy watching the drawing. That, uh, that World Tree drawing took me quite a bit of time there. It's uh, one of the bigger drawings I've done in a while, and it's going to get bigger. That sheet is actually only the first half of it, and uh, I'm going to extend it. And yes, that drawing will wind up illustrating the final versions of that's the project from which that second reading is pulled. All right, everyone. Well, I hope getting, getting this sort of scattered energy out there will sort of make me swing the other way and get me ready to focus up again. Uh, I hope you found something to enjoy here, and I will see you guys soon. If you guys have any questions for me or any nudge you want to give me to go in a particular direction, uh, leave it in the comments. Let's chat. And as always, you can email me at stevensketches at gmail.com if you want to talk about anything that uh, is not appropriate for public comments. Anyway, bye guys. See you soon.